Good morning. I did not make that video. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for being here this morning. Welcome to church, everybody. It's great to have you here today. Uh, we are continuing a teaching series in the New Testament book uh, of Hebrews called He is Greater. And last week and this week, we were talking about how Jesus is greater because the rest that he gives us is greater. So if you were here last week, uh, we talked about how rest was tied to a particular place in the Old Testament called the Promised Land, and Hebrews used the story of Israel not being able to enter the Promised Land as a case study in why people fall away from Jesus, why they lose faith and fail to enter into his rest. And the, the issues are, if you were here last week, the issues are unbelief that leads to a hardness of heart. Here were the key verses from last week, and just in case you weren't here, this is from Hebrews chapter 3, uh, verses, verse 12. It said, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then verse 15 said, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This morning we're just going to pick up with the same theme of rest, but in Hebrews chapter 4 the author backs out to, show, to talk about uh, something called the Sabbath rest. It's rest on a cosmic scale. And I wanted to share that Bible uh, Project video with you because it's the best way I know to help us take in the scope of all that is meant by that phrase, Sabbath rest. It is more than just taking Saturdays off, okay? It, it's, it's a rest that every weary and burdened heart longs for the ultimate rest that we were made for. You could call it heaven, but as we've talked about in this series already, there's actually something even greater than heaven coming. There's a new creation, Hebrews chapter 2 called it the world to come, and that's the rest that Sabbath rest looks forward to. Bible readers have noticed forever what we saw in the video there, that in the story of creation, there are six days that begin with morning and evening, but the seventh day has no morning, has no evening. There's, there's a, a sense in which God begins the story of humanity and redemption with an open invitation to rest that never needed to end. That has always been there since the beginning of creation, and it could have been entered into. And then God weaves the, the theme of Sabbath rest all the way through from Genesis to Revelation and especially in the life of Israel. So as you saw in the video, there's one day a week that was set aside for Israel to experience Sabbath rest, to, uh, to live as though they were already home with the Lord. But that was a part of a cycle of seven annual feasts that took place every year, a cycle of seven years, and then a cycle of seven times seven years. That, and in those seven years, it, it meant you know, liberation for slaves, the forgiveness of sin, a return to their inheritance, the restoration of creation itself, the elimination of debt. This is the world to come that God has promised since the very beginning and has woven it into the story, especially of Israel. And when Jesus comes and says, 
that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's saying more than I'm the guy who gets to make the rules for Saturday. He's saying, I'm the Lord of the true rest that all of creation is waiting for and it begins now with me. If you want rest, he says, come to me and you'll have it. Does that make sense? Let's pick up then where we left off last week. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. That'll be on page 1002 if you want to borrow a Bible from under the chairs in front of you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to read the first 13 verses together. Are you there? Tell me when you're there. Okay, here we go. Hebrews 4, 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should, have, should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again God appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whom he has entered God's rest, for, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's begin with a few promises regarding God's rest that are open to every single person here and everyone watching online this morning. Number one, the door is still open to you. The door to God's rest is open to you right now. Verse one. The promise of entering God's rest still stands. It's not too late. Chapter 3 was a warning to be careful, not to allow your heart to grow hard. And here we see the door is still open. It is still open to you today. The promise of entering God's rest is there. And you can know. You can know. And I'm speaking to everyone here. If you're 12 years old, I am talking to you right now, okay? If you are seven, I'm talking to you. You can know that you will enter God's rest. 
You can know that when you die, you will enter the presence of the Lord and be with him in heaven. You can know that with certainty. We'll say more on that later. But the door is open. That's promise number one. Verse 9 says basically the same thing. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The door is open. Number two, the conditions for entering have always been the same. This is Hebrews chapter 4 verse 3. He says, for we who have believed enter that rest. And it's always been this way. It's not like people prior to the advent of Christ entered in one way and we have to enter in another way. The conditions have always been the same. We who have believed enter that rest. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 95. That was a big theme last week. He quotes Psalm 95 as he said, I swore in my wrath that they shall never enter my rest. So here, here's the choice laid before every one of you. To believe and enter his rest or to harden your heart and God has sworn you will never enter. I, the universalists are wrong. They're wrong. There are those who believe and will enter, but it is possible to harden your heart. And God has told you what will happen. You, you will never enter, he says. Then he adds at the end of, of verse 3, he goes on to say, although God's works were finished from the foundation of the world. What does that mean, although his works were finished? He's just saying that that Sabbath rest has always been there. So the door is open to you, the conditions have always been the same, and the promise has always been there. Since the beginning of creation, Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, where that describes the seventh day, has always been there. It was there, this promise was there for Adam and Eve. They could have led us into rest if they had just believed God's word. It was there uh, at the time of Moses. If Israel would have just believed the word of God, they could have entered his rest. It was there under Joshua, verse 8. It was there under Joshua, but Joshua could not bring them in because they would not believe the word of God. In verse 7, we see it was there under King David. Verse 7 says, again, God appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So it was there at the beginning. It was there with Moses. It was there with Joshua. It was there with David. It was there for the readers of Hebrews. It is here for you now. God's rest has always been open to anyone who will believe his word. As you consider that. So just so you know what's coming this morning, I am going to plead with you today to enter the rest. Even if you're eight, you have to listen today, okay? I'm going to plead with you, if you have never, to, to say yes to entering that rest. That's where we're going today. While you consider that invitation, just a few things about why some do not enter. Why do some enter heaven and others do not? Well, verse 2 says that sometimes people mistake hearing with believing. Verse 2 says, For the gospel, the good news, came to us just as it did to Israel, but they got no benefit from it because they were not united by faith with those who listened. He's talking about Caleb and Joshua there. Caleb and Joshua were part of that original Exodus generation, and they did believe. 
But most of Israel was not united to them by faith. But when it talks about, you know, they heard, it's, it's talking about their whole participation in the life of Israel. It's not just hearing, but they were a part of this whole community that not, not only heard God's word, but they saw what God was doing. They participated, you know, they worshiped God. They brought God offerings, you know, but when push came to shove, they just would not listen. They would not believe. And it's the same for the church today. It's possible to hear the word of God and participate in the life of God's people, but never be united in faith with those who believe. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is why. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, God appoints a certain day. Okay, so the door is open. It remains for some to enter it. But some who hear the gospel don't enter because, verse 6, of disobedience. What is the disobedience that he's talking about here? He's talking about, remember the whole theme of Hebrews. He's talking about the disobedience of unbelief. That's what he's talking about. It, at first blush, okay, if you take verse 6 and just pluck it out of the Bible, at first blush it looks like it's saying they failed to enter because they didn't keep the rules. They failed to enter because they did wrong. And, and that's half true-ish. It's maybe a little less than half true. But the root is always unbelief. Go back to verse 2. They failed to enter because they would not believe the word of God. That's the disobedience verse 6 is talking about. So here's the nuance at the heart of the Christian message. Only, is everybody awake? You need to be awake right now, okay? Only those who believe enter God's rest. Only those who believe go to heaven when they die. That is the root and those who believe demonstrate that with a longing to do what's right. That's the fruit. A longing to do what's right. I'm not, I'm not saying you obey perfectly. I'm not saying you do everything exactly right. But there's an earnest and a sincere desire in those who believe in Jesus to do what he says. Only those who believe enter. And those who believe earnestly desire to obey the Lord. Assurance is found in a persistent turning away from unbelief. And sometimes we have to do it 50 times in a day. And you think, what the heck is wrong with me? I thought I was a Christian. Why am I still struggling with this unbelief? Why am I still struggling with this persistent sin? You're a Christian. That's why you're struggling. If you weren't, you'd just lay down and die. And say, well, this is what I am. Oh, well, here we go. 50 times a day, you may have to, to re, you know, say to your heart, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. I don't believe you. I'm going to believe God. I'm going to trust Jesus. This is a Christian life. To uh, say no to unbelief, and what happens over time is that unbelief loses its grip on your heart, and your character actually is transformed and changed. I'm speaking to you as a sinner this morning. I'm well-versed in these things. I, should, I could tell you all about my 20s. It's just a mess, okay? But I persisted in, re in saying no to unbelief, and I've grown. I've, I've changed. God help me, you know. Knock on wood. This isn't even made out of wood. We need a wood, Okay? How do we recognize 
How do we recognize unbelief that's taking hold? Well, in Exodus, in the story of Israel, you know, they heard the word of God and they said, we believe you, God, and you're so great. They worshiped him and they even made offerings to him and, and all kinds of great things happened. But when they got to the edge of the land and he said, go in and take it, it's yours. I said, I'm not doing that. Oh, no, that's crazy. They're going to kill us. In the church, it looks like I believe in Jesus. Oh, that's so great. Here's, here's what his word calls us to be. Here's what it calls us to do. Here's what freedom in Jesus looks like. I'm not doing that. That's crazy. That's going to wreck my whole life. And if it goes on long enough, our hearts get hard. and We fall away and one day someone will say, has anyone seen so-and-so in a while? I haven't seen them around. Someone else in the meeting will say, yeah, they left a while ago. They embraced some other understanding of the kingdom that's just not recognizable. They've slipped into agnosticism. They just, they don't know what they believe anymore, but they've let go of Jesus. And everyone in the room will, ugh. Happens all the time. So in the reading, the author gives us two commands, two things that we should do to enter God's rest, and ironically, neither of them sounds very restful, okay? Uh, the first is to fear, verse 1, and the other is to strive, verse 11. Uh, verse 1 says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. I want you to notice first that the author includes himself. Let us fear. So pastors, church leaders, elders, you're not exempt from the dangers of self-deception and unbelief. Let us fear. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know. You can know you have eternal life. A theologians call this assurance of faith. You can have assurance. You can rest in knowing that if you died today, you would be in the presence of the Lord in heaven. Assurance is a sense of the heart that I know that I know that I know. And in the Bible, Hebrews... The book of Hebrews is probably more preoccupied with the issue of assurance than any other book, I think, in the Bible. I would say one of its primary purposes, actually, is to give assurance to believers, but the way it does that is by warning and by asking you to look again and again and again at what you believe. It wants you, Hebrews wants you to approach your death with confidence and it does it by asking you, please take this seriously. Okay? When verse 1 says, let us fear, it's talking about the kind of fear that drives a skydiver to check, recheck, and triple check his equipment before he jumps. He carefully packs his parachute. He makes sure there are no tears or holes. He checks the lines to make sure they're cinched up and hooked in really well. He goes over the plane and makes sure that everything is working the way that it should. Is he afraid? Yeah. 
because you get to make one mistake in skydiving and then you're done, okay? So yeah, yeah, he's, a, he's afraid because jumping out of planes is a serious business and you get one mistake. So you can't be cavalier about your preparation and yet that is exactly how Americans approach death. Sort of a, you know, eh, well, you know, I'll think about it when I think, when I think about it. a skydiver checks, rechecks, and triple checks his equipment because a mistake will be catastrophic. And what does all of that checking and rechecking give him? Assurance. <laughs> so that when he steps into the jump door, he knows. He knows what's going to happen and he's going to have a safe landing. And that is what Hebrews wants for you. Imagine a skydiver who gets into the door and the jump master says, you ready to go? I don't know. I didn't really thought about it. Whee! You know? <laughs> that person's dumb. That's not, it may not go well. And yet that's how we approach death. We take great pains to prepare for our career. We take great pains to get our kids ready for their lives. We take great pains to prepare for retirement. We go to great lengths to make sure we leave a nice inheritance. And then we get to the door of death. Are you ready? Yeah, I've never thought about it. Wee! Do you know what's going to happen when you go through the door of death? This has been a long time, maybe 15 years ago, a hero of mine, a long time University Christian Fellowship staff person uh, was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And the prognosis was good. You know, there was going to be a surgery and he's very much alive and well today, but cancer is cancer, okay? And I remember him talking about uh, what was going on. I remember him saying, uh, I remember the quote, it I, I would be sad for my family, he said, but I have looked again and again and again at what I believe and why I believe it and I believe Jesus is who he said he is. In other words, if, if this is my jump, I know where I'm gonna land. That's what Hebrews wants for you. That's rest. One thing about assurance, just so you know, there are no shortcuts to it. There are no shortcuts to assurance. The answer is not to become, again, just back to last week, the answer here is not to become obsessed with the quality of your faith or the quantity of your faith, but to look at the object of your faith again and again and say, what am I trusting? Who am I resting in? What do I really believe? And what happens over time is assurance grows in your heart. I also need to let you know that assurance will come and go throughout your life. In my 20s, I think I got saved 78 times, something like that, because I just, I was in such a struggle with sexual sin and all other kinds of temptations. I just thought, how can I be a Christian? And I just kept coming back again and again. God, like, are you going to save me? Are you real? Are you helping me? Are you changing me? And maybe you're in that season right now. I just say, hold on. Keep holding on. You're actually doing what a Christian is supposed to do in response to her sin or his sin. So you may be here today. Uh, I talked with a friend this week who's just like, I know, I know what I know. I know if I died today, I would be well, I'd be okay. I said, sis, that's awesome. You just need to know a day may come when you don't feel that way, and it's okay. Go back again. Keep looking again. I, I don't enjoy personally, just see, I don't enjoy like a high degree of assurance personally, and it keeps me having to go back again and again. Why do I believe these things? 
What if I'm wrong? You know, all, all these other things. Somebody asked me once, how certain are you? Like, give me a percentage. How certain are you that Jesus is who he said he is? You're like 95%? Because that'd be really solid. You know, 95%, 98%. Is there like a 2% chance you're wrong? I just said, okay, listen, listen. It's like asking me, is it possible that my wife Darcy is actually a Russian spy? <laughs> like deep, deep undercover, 18 years of lying to me and pulling the, is it possible? I mean, yeah, I suppose, but basically nothing else in life would make any sense. That's what I, that's how I feel, okay? I'm, per, I'm but you keep going back again and again looking at the object of your faith. So let us fear. That's what it's talking about. Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. I do not want to be in a meeting someday and hear your name. Where is so-and-so? She fell away. She just fell away. Check and recheck and triple check. What is my own, this is what I want you to ask yourself today. Honest, right now, right where you're sitting. What is my only hope in life and death? That I'm not my own, but I belong to God and to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Do I believe that his word is true? Yes, I believe it. I'm ready to obey whatever he asks me to do. Is my heart's desire to love him and obey him, even when I do it imperfectly? It is. It is my desire to do that. God, help me to do it even more. Then you are a Christian. And there's tremendous rest in that. The second thing then that Hebrews tells us to do is to strive. And I'm looking at verses 9, 10, and 11. He says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the disobedience of, of unbelief is what he's talking about. Remember his audience, please. He's writing to uh, Jewish Christians who are constantly being tempted to return to an earthly religion. They want to they turn away from Christ and they want to turn to a performance-based religion. And so that's the issue when he says, let's strive. Let's strive to enter that rest. It's not that they were not doing enough. They were actually being tempted to, be, to put their hope in their performance. He's, when he talks about striving, it's the same thing we talked about last week. He's saying, please hold fast to Christ. No matter what comes, no matter what happens. When we, when we okay, thank you, first of all, to everyone who reached out to me this week with questions. That's what I love. I love it more than preaching, talking to you, emailing you, that's okay. So I know that a lot of your missional communities and your small groups talked about this, using the conversation guide and everything. Here's my question for you. When you, as you talked about this, did the conversation turn to how you're performing or did it turn to how you're clinging to Christ? Because that is the difference between religion and the gospel right there. Was the conversation about how you did this week? When I, I, when I, especially when I was a young man, I was a part of all kinds of accountability groups where the issue was always how I was performing. How many times did you sin this week? Okay, put out your hand. Bad, don't do that. It turned me into a great liar is all it really did. The issue is 
Okay, okay, so you fell into that same sin again this week. How are you doing holding on to Christ? How are you doing trusting his promises? Is unbelief losing its grip on your heart? That's the issue. That's the striving that Hebrews is talking about. Striving strains to take hold of Christ. Striving strains to trust his promises. Striving hears his word and says, God, help me to obey. Striving holds fast to Christ when we're confused. It holds fast to Christ when we don't understand, when we're in pain. Striving brooks no rivals in the affections of our hearts. Striving takes advantage of all those means of grace we talked about last week. All the gifts God has given the church to help us continue along. Striving puts no confidence in the flesh. Striving has no hope but the word and the grace of God. Striving hears the promise of Jesus, I will never let you go, and responds, this is my only hope. That's how striving actually is rest. Striving is straining to rest. Think about that. No wonder Christianity can be hard sometimes. I'm straining to rest in you, God. There's a pastor named D. James Kennedy that used to use this illustration to talk about genuine Christian faith. He would say, uh, let's say a tightrope walker stretches out a wire across a raging uh, waterfall and the word goes out, come and see the tightrope walker walk across the falls on a rope. That's the first step of Christian faith. We hear the good news. Jesus Christ has paid for all my sin and the offer is open to all who believe. We hear the good news. That's step one. Stage two, a huge crowd gathers and they see the tightrope walker go back and forth across the falls. This is the second stage. We have to, we have to come to a place where we intellectually acknowledge the facts of the gospel. So I've investigated the historical record. I'm convinced that yes, in fact, Jesus did die for my sin and was raised from the dead. Okay, and sometimes that takes time. You may be here this morning, a friend invited you or something, you're watching online maybe for the first time. Sometimes it takes time to work through all the questions that you have. Christianity Explored is a great place to do that. But there's this uh, third stage of faith where the tightrope walker gets out a wheelbarrow and goes across the rope with the wheelbarrow. And then one of his comrades jumps in the wheelbarrow. And you watch him push his friend across the raging falls. And then he turns around and pushes him back. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, who would like to get in the wheelbarrow? (laughs) Now we're talking about authentic biblical faith. James Kennedy would say, only people who get in the wheelbarrow have saving faith. Until you get in, until you really are resting all of your weight on the promises of Jesus, until you're resting all of your hope on what he's done for you, you're still a spectator. You're still watching. Now some of you get in the wheelbarrow, God bless you, and you just kind of lay back and you sit like this. You brought a Mai Tai with you and you just... All the way across. Go ahead, Jesus, turn it around. Take us back. I'm just doing awesome. And some of you get in the wheelbarrow and you're white knuckle the whole. <laughs> but you're in the wheelbarrow. 
I don't know which camp you fall in, and it may change throughout your life, but this is, this is the question. Are you in the wheelbarrow? I want to ask you to consider that as we sing together in just a moment. The door is open. The promise of entering God's rest is there. It is sincere. It has been available to every generation that has ever lived, and the conditions are always the same. Would you hear his voice today? And choose not to harden your heart, but to say, all right, I believe you. I'm going to get in the wheelbarrow. I'm going to put my full weight and hope in what you've done for me. If you're here today, and you, and you have done that, this is my invitation. We're going to sing a song right now where the, the, the call is come, come as you are. I want you right where you're sitting. I just want you to check and recheck and triple check again. Say, Jesus, I am trusting you. I don't know all the, mis the theological mysteries of the world, but I know this, that my hope is in you alone. Not in anything I've done, not in anything that I've earned, but just in you. Triple check again today as we sing. For those of you who know this is not the case, I'm asking you today, I am calling you to respond to the voice of God. He has appointed a day, calling it today, saying through David so long ago, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I'm going to come back up halfway through the song and I'm going to invite you into the wheelbarrow today. And I am talking to everyone who is old enough to understand the words coming out of my mouth. Will you get in? I'm not asking you to clean up your life first. I am not asking you to do anything but to turn to Jesus in faith. Why don't you do, we'll just sit during these first couple of verses and I want you to check your gear. And I'll be up in just a minute. From wherever you've been Come broken hearted Let rescue begin Come find your mercy Oh sinner come dear Earth has no sorrow That heaven can't heal Earth has no sorrow That heaven can't heal Let down your burden
It's as simple as ABC. First, admit this morning. Admit, say to God, I am a sinner. I have lived according to my own wisdom, and you are right. And I confess this morning. B is believe. Say, I, I have heard about what Jesus has done for me on the cross in dying in my place. I believe he did that. I am trusting him. And C is simply to commit yourself to his care. Say, God, as much as I understand what I'm hearing, I am getting in the wheelbarrow today. I am putting all my hope and all my trust in Jesus alone, not in anything that I've done, but simply in what he's done for me. Would you have mercy on me today and give me new life in Jesus? A, B, C. If that's you, let me, let's just pray together right now. Everybody pray with me right now. Say, Father, I admit I've lived my own life and sinned against you, and I, I confess it, God. I believe that you died for me, that you rose again for me, and I am trusting in you alone. Because of who you are, I am committing my whole life to you today. Give me grace to walk in obedience and to turn from unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just share this promise with you. This is Tim Porter's favorite verse. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's stand and uh, finish this morning singing together. Yeah. 